0: Lock Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglives.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and the Garfield Firm, serving all fifty states with news and analysis
0: This is Neil Garfield, back from a three-week non-vacation of a grueling schedule in courts um, in a variety of places, and I'm happy to be back. And this is Thursday, September 10th, 2015. Tonight we have another interesting show for you, because we have Jill Smith, attorney in Seattle, who has taken up the challenge of defending homeowners against what we all know to be wrongful or fraudulent foreclosures. She joins us tonight and we're lucky to have her on the show. Jill Smith also can provide litigation support for those attorneys who have not studied these subjects like she has. You can get her contact information on my Living Lies blog. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Amgar. And the Garfield firm with offices in South Florida, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call nine five four four nine five nine eight six seven or go to our uh face page on the Living Lies blog and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. And for my friends at the foreclosure mills who are listening to this show, no contribution is required. You can uh, contribute if you like, just get the money from the bank you work for. Just recognize the error of your ways, and that would be contribution enough. Living Lies with nearly 11 million visits is the number one place on the Internet to get information, forms, facts, and opinions from a variety of sources on foreclosure defense, consumer loans, and even student loans, all free. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other consumers who may not be aware of the effect the housing crisis has had on them. And we are accomplishing our mission here, as more and more judges are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the papers that are being used by the banks, the trustees, and servicers to foreclose on behalf of trusts that only exist on paper and never operated in real life. And for the judges that don't get it, the U.S. Supreme Court explained it to them. The court, the trial judge, may not interpret a statute that is clear on its face. More on that later. We now have a number of test cases across the country regarding rescisions, including those sent within the three-year period from when the documents were signed and those that are older and sometimes much older. My answer is that the statute and the Supreme Court are unanimous. The statute, as Justice Scalia said in the Jessenowski case, the statute makes no distinctions between disputed and undisputed rescisions. The statute says that the procedures apply to all rescissions. That means the rescission is effective by operation of law when mailed, even if it could be possibly attacked, successfully attacked, by a party withstanding on the basis of when the consummation occurred or some other ground that would make the rescission subject to being vacated, like a court order would be vacated. But if you don't file in time, like when you need to file an appeal or a motion for rehearing, if you pass that time, you've waived it. In this case, it's 20 days from the date that the rescission was sent. What people are not quite grasping, because it's just too simple, is that rescission is effective when mailed by operation of law. Sounds like a jumble of words. But what it means is that rescission is just as effective as a court order. And if you want to get rid of it, you have to do something about it and not just write a letter or say, that's not true, I'm going to ignore it. So at the moment, at that moment when the rescission is mailed, the loan contract is canceled, the note and mortgage are void, and the lender, whoever that is, must pay all the money back that they ever received and all the money that was ever paid out as compensation for the origination of the loan. It is the equivalent of a court order. A court order gets its effect by and its authority by operation of law. That law is a statute that says if the judge says it, it's the law in that case. But the Supreme Court put the reins on judges who don't like rescission. In their unanimous decision in January in Jesinoski v. Countrywide, they said there is nothing ambiguous about the statute, and therefore no judge anywhere can interpret it. The only choice the judge has is to follow the law, not make new law. And just like (laughs) the mandatory sentences, many judges have said in open court that they would order a lesser sentence to a defendant, but that the minimum mandatory sentence by operation of law passed by the legislature must be applied. In the case of the rescission, the legislature is Congress. Jill Smith is an attorney with in-depth personal experience in the field of foreclosure defense and has a varied background which brings a lot of depth to her understanding of the process of what's been going on, not only in court, but culturally, and the effect on people. Her website is www.naturalresourcelawgroup.com. She established her law practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. For 18 years, she has represented a wide variety of clients in employment law, land use, environmental, public lands, water law, Indian law, tax-exempt organizations, and election and campaign finance law, used or may be in the Citizens United situation. Jill served as the executive director of New Mexico Conservation Voters Alliance, New Mexico Conservation Education Fund, and the Washington Wilderness Coalition. Most recently, Jill served as in-house counsel for the Pueblo of Sandia in New Mexico, Jill was formerly legal director for FutureWise, a land-use watchdog organization in Seattle. Jill is a a graduate of Vermont Law School, where she won the Academic Excellence Award for Natural Resources Law and top honors in federal Indian law. Now she is one of the preeminent foreclosure defense attorneys on the West Coast. Jill, thanks and welcome to our show.
2: Hi, Neil. Thanks for asking me.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how your background uh, has assisted you in uh, going into foreclosure defense and how you made the switch from uh, what you did to fighting foreclosures?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I have... Most of my career focused on the needs of ordinary individual people. Um, It's a difficult thing to do in this business, but you see that there's a much greater need for individuals to have legal representation on things that are really daunting for the average person. Property law is one of the most complex areas of law. And for people to go it alone on that, it's, it's, Incredibly difficult, um, and I, so I've made it kind of my personal mission to be able to help people, individuals that need legal representation that wouldn't normally be able to have access to that. And I, 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 I still firmly believe that it, it's 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 a it's a serious deficiency in the legal system even to this day. And I really want to continue to be able to support people who want to fight um banks corporations on any level that you know um they're experiencing a, a legal hardship and it's not it's not an easy thing to do but you know people need this it it's it's not an even playing field and any little thing that we can do on that, on that um in that arena it, it it's enormously helpful for individuals that are are looking to not just help their own personal position but create precedent and assist others in doing it
0: it's creating precedent that i think is the most important um because once you get up to the appellate level and you get a favorable decision, you're affecting not only one case, but thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of cases. And yeah. I, I applaud your, uh, your your efforts in doing that. Jill, you know that I've been writing about Teela rescission, and it's caused a lot of controversy because I've counseled clients in my jurisdiction and lawyers in other jurisdictions that anyone can send a rescission letter and that upon mailing it, it cancels the deal. It's effective by operation of law. So even if it was wrongful or had some other defect in the reasoning process behind sending it, it's still effective by operation of law. I've also suggested recording the rescission notice as a notice of interest in real property in the county records. The banks are furious and devious. They're attempting to avoid the clear wording of the statute and the Jessenowski decision. Where do you stand on the issue of rescission?
2: Well, here's here's how I view the rescission issue, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that Um in this conversation because one of one of the things that has come to my attention most recently and and in most of my cases is the question of um the three year time period in the TILA statute and by that I mean there's a there's a in in TELA uh the Truth and Lending Act it states that um after 3 years you can no longer um claim any kind of rescission but the operative word in the TILA statute is the word consummation so the three-year period runs from the consummation of the loan that's not the same I think people confuse this by assuming that that means the closing of the loan and I mean we would all any you know layperson would look at that and assume consummation of the loan means the closing of the loan. But that's not necessarily the case. I mean we need to ask ourselves what what does the word consummation mean? The consummation of the loan is the is when the actual physical money changes hands. So when currency is exchanged from the lender to the borrower. If that hasn't actually occurred, if it's a table funded loan, it's a paper loan. There's no money exchanged. There's no money put into the game, so to speak. There, you know, my argument is there's no consummation. If if at some point they can come forward and prove that, that's on them. The burden is on them to show that. But consummation is the operative word. Let's not, um, you know, for everyone listening. Don't don't be confused that that means the closing of the loan. So the date you went into the escrow agent and signed so the papers, not necessarily. That needs to be proven, and if they can't come forward and prove it, I mean that. So that's one thing I'm working at on the uh, two rescission issue. Um, well, let me get back, back on. I, I mean, it's, what it's, do you think about that? that? That's something we're facing right now.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that what we have. Uh, it is confusion over the the most simple aspects of of this. And the fact that you sign papers on a particular day and you call it a closing does not mean it was funded at the same time you signed the papers. In fact, in most cases, nearly all, I'm talking in the high 90% range, over 95, the funding of the trans action does not occur until there is a post-closing, if you will, uh, underwriting. And
2: Exactly. The underwriting is the key.
0: Exactly. And in, in most cases, the actual funding takes place, could be 24 hours, could be 48 hours, could be a week, a month, or even years, as Jill has pointed out. Uh, uh, where you have a table-funded loan which, in effect, means that the party on the note and mortgage never gave you the loan. So consummation in that chain never uh, never occurred. And the other point that I want to make to piggyback on what Bill was saying is that the... um, Uh, the execution of of the document, of course, does not mean that's when consummation occurred. But in addition to that, you have uh, a number of issues of disclosure and so forth that can accompany uh, potential actions. And where the rescission was sent years back and we've got many of these now, within the three years, even from the date that the the documents were signed, that means, according to the Supreme Court, and you can't get any higher than that, unless you go to somebody evangelical, they'll tell you that there's something higher. But in the law...
2: (laughs) Yeah, we all know that's not working out well, is it?
0: (laughs) No, it isn't. But in the law, you can't get any higher than the Supreme Court. And whether they're right or wrong, they're final. And right. so the the issue here is not nearly as complicated as what people are doing when they overthink things. And as an academic, I've been guilty of overthinking myself. But I understand where people are coming from. And it's hard to believe that any uh average Joe who has a loan could just send a letter and it has the effect of a court order so
2: that 's the key with that the terminology that people and you 've said it several times already is the it's affected by operation of law that means it's the equivalent of a court order and that that's that's what i think that's hard to believe but it's true and it is it is effective
0: what what's been your experiences well let me ask you a more direct question so you you've, you've had some uh, experiences in the, uh where people were looking for modification right
2: yes that that's a very common um uh scenario yeah. that people come to me with
0: and and have you heard like So many of us, uh, your prospective clients or clients tell you that they were told by the bank that they can't be considered for modification unless they're 90 days behind?
2: That is absolutely what I've heard time and time again over the last you know, six years since I've been doing this particular field of law. In fact, that's the most common complaint I have when people come to me and they want to file a lawsuit. They say, look, all I wanted was a loan modification. I wasn't even behind. And the bank told me that I needed to stop making my payments for three months, and then they would talk to me about a HAMP loan modification. And then that just starts the downward spiral as – you know, I think many people listening to this probably know that you get into that trap with them where, you know, in all in all reality, what should have happened, there's two federal programs. There's HAMP and HARP. HAMP is for people who are, are actually behind on their payments. HARP is for people who are not behind on their payments. But the banks never tell people that. You call up and you say, I'm not behind on my payments, but I understand there's this federal program. How can you help me? The bank says, Well, we we can't help you until you're you know 90 days behind. Well, that that's just a fraudulent statement in and of itself. What they should say is, if you're not behind, there's the HARP program. We can help you just get a lower interest rate and get you know a better monthly payment. They never tell people that. It's in their interest as a profit-making greedy bank to tell people, oh, stop making your payments. And the unsuspecting layperson doesn't know any better, so they take that advice. And what ends up happening, is this is the old story we've all heard, is that you, you know, then you get into that downward spiral of foreclosure.
0: Yeah, they're, they're presented with an alternative of either not going for modification or uh, uh, going into default. Now, what the banks are careful in doing, and they have scripts there for their customer service people, is they've got answers for all the questions so that they don't come out and say, you should default in order to get the modification. What, right. they, what they keep saying is that you can't be considered for modification unless you're at least 90 days behind. And some judges uh, are latching on to the fact that the bank didn't have their people expressly advise people to default or to stop making payments. But the clear... Correct the clear message to everyone that calls is stop making your payments and we will consider you for modification. And then you get down the road, and, of course, they lose the papers 100 times. You fax them, you mail them, you email them, you deliver them by carrier pigeon. It doesn't make any difference. They'll lose it. And
2: there's no end in sight. (laughs) There's no end in sight. It just goes on and on.
0: And and I think that, that it's time uh, for lawyers to get together in some fashion and get this communicated to the court system that it is the rule that when people call up for a modification, they are coerced into a default that didn't even exist yet.
2: Yes. I think that's I think that's exactly what needs to happen. And I would also say, you know, what what people need to also realize is that there there was a lot of media back in, you know, 2009 through 2011 that, you know, uh talked a lot about foreclosures and um the foreclosure crisis. And we don't really hear much about it on the news anymore. And the fact is, it's still going on, and it may actually even be worse in some places. Um, you know, the the fact that the banks that were considered too big to fail are even bigger now. And what I'm seeing with people coming into my office telling me is the same tactics are still going on. Even with all these settlements, the $25 billion settlement with the big six, You know, banks, and we've now got the CFPB uh, agency in place. The the tactics they're using to foreclose on people are still exactly the same. They're still going on. And there's really no difference between now and 2010. And and it's, you know, it's stunning how the arrogance of the banks. You go into court with these guys and their lawyers, you know, people – think, well, I'm going to, if I, at least if I file a lawsuit, I'll get heard and I can get my issues resolved. And, you know, most of the time probably will on some level, but the attitude of those banks, lawyers, or the trustees, attorneys in court is incredibly arrogant. They, you know, uh, unless the judge forces them to do something, they just continue to hold the same opinion that you know your homeowner client is a deadbeat. You didn't pay your bills, and so you know you're you're you, you should just be foreclosed. Period. I think mean, they just literally do not understand state law. They don't get it, and they they have no interest in getting it, even to this day, 2015. That's
0: that's true. <clears throat> a lot of the judges that I encounter are of the opinion, in fact, one openly stated in, in open court that you may be right, but we have an obligation to protect the banks of our community so that our economy doesn't collapse, which, of yeah, course... Yeah,
2: that's stunning.
0: It, it's stunning, it's reversible, and it's absurd. But And that's
2: his personal opinion.
0: Exactly, exactly. Or... More likely or not more likely, in addition to that, um, policy decisions have been communicated to judges on the bench saying that we can't let the banks go down, and that's I think, right, I think Elizabeth Warren is correct when she said that city should have been broken up into pieces. I think Wells Fargo should have also and Bank of America and uh, uh, Chase, and, you know, in the, I mean, in, the, in the case of Chase Bank, they're picking and choosing which loans they're claiming to own and under what circumstances. If there's any liability, they say, oh, no, we don't have that one. If they, uh, if they think they can make money, they say, yeah, we acquired it when we acquired Washington Mutual. Well, that's just not true. They acquired no loans from Washington Mutual. And And there's
2: testimony to prove it.
0: Yeah. And the the affidavit from Richard Schopp, the FDIC receiver in the Washington Mutual case, um, uh, that uh, got spread around, which he signed, and he's sorry he signed it, uh, and he now disclaims, uh, said that somehow or other Chase acquired the loans by operation of law, which he was in no position to say. But now he says that Chase did, the same guy, that Chase did not acquire those loans, and in fact they couldn't have acquired the loans from Washington Mutual because Washington Mutual had all, <clears throat> had already sold the loans into the secondary market and they were all subject to claims of securitization, which are probably false, but in any event, they didn't own them anymore. All they had was the servicing rights. And it is true that Chase did acquire the servicing rights from Washington Mutual, but they did not acquire the loans. Well,
2: Which time, I think that people need to realize the distinction between that, and that I think people are coming to understand that more, um, more and more.
0: You you have to assume, and I, and I and this is a message to lawyers, that banks are willing to buy. They're willing to to have people perjure themselves. They're willing to fabricate and forge documents. It's all true. So <clears throat> that's it for to, for tonight with Jill Smith, and I hope that you'll come back. You can get her information on uh, my latest uh, blog post and uh, otherwise uh, call my numbers. Jill, thanks for being with
2: us. Uh, It's my pleasure, and I thank you for inviting me.
1: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily. At the Living Lies blog, we provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.